we continue to worship by live stream, and perhaps this morning you're tuning in for the first time. If so, welcome to North Roanoke Baptist Church, live stream edition. We're so thankful that you've tuned in this morning. We are walking through the book of Hebrews. We've been in the book of Hebrews for some time now. We took a a break during Holy Week for Palm Sunday and for Easter, but today we're diving back into the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, turning the page from chapter 9 to chapter 10 today, verses 1 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And what you'll see in this text is a summary of a lot of the information that we've already covered together as a church family. And as I've reminded you many times in the past, when the Bible repeats itself, it's, it's not because it didn't know that it had, it had already covered that information. The, the Bible is repetitive because we need uh, to be reminded of essential truths of our salvation and of the gospel. So we'll cover some familiar territory this morning, and then we'll get down to verses 11 through 14 and, and get some new information, or at least a new angle on some old information. And so today we're in Hebrews chapter 10. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and join me in turning there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Before we read the text, I'll pray for our time together. Would you bow with me? God in heaven... We are so thankful that you have spoken. We are so thankful for the truths that we just sang, that that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit each play a role, uh, and that these three are the one Lord of our salvation. God, that that through the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, through the pouring out and the sending of the Holy Spirit, who has come as convictor and life changer and then comforter, God, that we can know and commune with God. These truths are possible because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus who has finished the work of redemption in His blood. We rejoice in that. God, help us as we plumb the depths of Your Word this morning to be strengthened and encouraged and edified this morning through the hearing of Your Word proclaimed. We ask in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Hebrews Chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold. I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest, meaning the priests of the Old Covenant, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. This morning I want to share with you four truths that we find in this text. The first is this, the sacrifices of the old covenant could not secure the promises of God. The sacrifices of the old covenant, the sacrifices of bulls and goats on the temple or the tabernacle altar could not secure the promises of God. If you've been following along in Hebrews, this is not new information. The requirements of the old covenant were not a light, but a shadow. And for there to be a shadow, there's got to be light somewhere. And the light is Jesus. And it is the sacrifice of Jesus, not the sacrifice of bulls and goats or of our own good deeds that turns the light on and opens a door for us to commune with God. Communion with God happens in and through the light. And Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now that Jesus the light has come, the author of Hebrews is asking, why in the world would you run back to the shadow of the old covenant that was anticipating the light that was behind it all along? The good things to come mentioned in verse 1 are the promises of God. The promises of God couldn't come through sacrifice because the people of Israel had sinned and there needed to be a payment for their sin that was the equivalent or or made in human blood, not just animal blood. And so to secure the promises that God had made to His people, promises of a forever life and a forever land through the final forgiveness of sins, it couldn't happen through animal sacrifices. We needed the better final, sin-removing sacrifice of Jesus. We needed Jesus the light, not the shadowy substance of the old covenant sacrifices. Jesus is the full and final payment for our sin. He's the sacrifice that accomplishes what no other sacrifice could. He's an acceptable payment for sin so that we can be forgiven and then qualified to dwell with God. Do you see that in verse 1? That Through the sacrifice of Christ, we can be made perfect. That God makes perfect those who repent of their sin and are washed in the blood of Jesus. We've already seen that communion with God, fellowship with God, requires inward perfection. We see that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. To draw near to God, to be in the presence of a holy, pure, almighty God requires 
perfection. But the animal sacrifices were powerless to take away our consciousness of sins. We, we would sacrifice, or the Israelites would sacrifice, and as soon as they sacrificed, there was yet this need for more sacrifice because the sin was still there, the guilt was still there. The Old Covenant was full of sacrifices. There were daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, and annual sacrifices. The temple was nearly a slaughterhouse 24-7. Blood all around. Bloodshed everywhere you would go. But as soon as you had come and offered your sacrifice, preparations for yet another sacrifice were needed because of sin and the consciousness of sin and guilt remained. The Old Covenant was not worthless. It it, it provided a great service. What it proved to us is this, that round-the-clock animal sacrifices could not remove down-to-the-root sinfulness. We needed a better remedy. And then in verse 2, the author says this, look, if the sacrifices actually worked, then wouldn't the sacrifices have stopped? Wouldn't they have just ended the the sacrificial system? If the sin was gone and removed, if the guilt was gone and removed, if communion with God had been given to all of God's people, then the sacrifices could have ended. But as we see in verse 3, the sacrifices did not stop. The ceaseless sacrifices reminded us of our remaining sinfulness. A better sacrifice was required because it is impossible for even the best of animals to take away and keep on taking away sins, verse 4. Impossible. It cannot happen. The only place that you can find a remedy for your sin is in the blood of Christ. All other remedies are impossible. They are powerless to take away and keep on taking away. It's present tense. Keep on taking away sins. Only the sacrifice of the eternal Son of God on the cross in your place has the power to take away sins past, present, and future. Praise God for the sacrifice of Jesus. And because the blood of bulls and goats was powerless to remove sin, that is why, verse 5, Jesus came into the world. Therefore, Jesus came into the world. The second thing we see in this text is that Jesus came. He left heaven. God the Son left heaven to be born and conceived in Mary. Why? To do His Father's will, to end the old covenant, and forever set apart God's people through His once for all sacrifice. He came to end the old covenant and set apart God's people for God through His sacrifice. In verses 5-7, through The author places Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, on the lips of Jesus as he comes into the world. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought that Psalm 40 was a psalm of David. What do you mean it's Jesus speaking? Well, what the author is telling us is that the psalm of David is also a psalm of Jesus. And we ought not be too surprised by that, right? Because all of Scripture comes from Jesus. Jesus is God. And the Bible is written by God, which means we don't need a red-letter Bible to know what Jesus says. All the words of God are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And wherever the Spirit is, there the Father and the Son are also. So the whole Bible is authored by Jesus. But the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is a bit different. He's saying that as David wrote Psalm 40, 
he is prophetically capturing the thoughts in the mind of God the Son as he moves from heaven to earth. Why does Jesus come? He comes because look at verse 6. In whole burnt offerings, quoting from Psalm 40, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. God looked down. God saw how people turned animal sacrifices into a system of religious pride. And He saw how people missed out on their great need for God. God was looking not for animals, but for the sacrifices of a broken and contrite spirit, Psalm 51, 17. But instead, most people were just checking the boxes, bringing the animals as they were called to do, but never really checking their heart. And even if they were, their hearts were still clouded by sin and they longed for communion with God. And God the Son looks down at humanity. He sees our condition He sees that we are unable to commune with God and to glorify God and to know God in our daily lives. And He sees that we can't give to God what God is worthy of. The totality of a life lived for Him in His glory. So God came down. This is called, in theology, the condescension of the Son. The Son of God condescended. He did not... uh, he did not grasp at his deity and say, well, I'm, the, I'm God the Son. I, I deserve to be up here. Instead, he came down. He left heaven to robe himself in our humanity and to live the life we should have lived and didn't and die the death we deserved to die and now don't have to if we'll trust in him. He came to offer to his father what no descendant of Adam ever did. He came to give to the Father a life wholly and completely lived for the glory of God. And what a life Jesus lived. While the first Adam failed to live for God even in the great conditions of the Garden of Eden, Jesus did not fail to honor the Father all the way through the Garden of Gethsemane and to the cross where He gave His life as an atoning sacrifice for those who trust in Him. Jesus honored God all the way to the cross. Where humanity failed in pride and in blind ambition, the incarnate Son of God remained faithful in humble submission. Jesus came to do perfectly and completely the will of God. His Father. And we know what the will of the Father was for His Son, right? Isaiah says it this way, The Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. If He would render Himself as a guilt offering, He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. Jesus came to take away or to abolish the old or the first covenant, verse 9. And he, at the same time, came to establish the second or the new covenant through his once for all sacrifice. Jesus ends the first covenant by dying, by paying the price that it required, human death, so that our looming death 
sentence could be canceled, our sins forever forgiven, and access to God opened up for God's people. And because Jesus did this will of the Father, offering His body as a sacrifice, we, the people of God, have been sanctified. Do you see it in verse 10? We have been sanctified by the will of God as well. It was God's will for His Son to be crushed so that you could be set apart for God. No longer set apart for the world. No longer set apart for sin. No longer set apart for selfishness and blind ambition. But set apart for the glory of God. We have been sanctified. If you belong to Christ today, if you've given your life to Christ today, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ who is crucified for you, then you've been set apart. You aren't set apart by deeds that you've done or sacrifices that you've made or positions that you hold. You have been set apart by God's will through the perfect obedience of His Son who gave Himself once and for all to rescue sinners who flee their sin and trust in Christ. Forgiveness is found in the blood of Christ. The third truth that we see in this text this morning is found in verses 11 through 14. It's, it's this. What we saw in the verses we just covered that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that we are once and for all set apart for God. If we truly trust in God, we are set apart. But then we see a, a parallel truth in verses 11 through 14, which is if we have truly been saved, then Jesus keeps on saving us. He keeps on setting us apart and making us more like Jesus. In verses 11 through 14, uh, the author highlights the futility or the worthlessness of the Old Covenant through the priest's unending work. The priests in the Old Covenant, they stood daily offering the same sacrifices time after time. The Old Covenant was like a never-ending groundhog day. Jesus came and offered Himself for the purpose of giving us a new day. He came to offer Himself as the one and final sacrifice for sins for all time. You see, until Jesus came, the priests were always standing, always serving in the sacrificial system one commentator says this, their ministry had to be repeated over and over again, generation by generation, and yet it could not save a single sinner. And what the author is saying is this, why would you run back to a system that can never make an end of your sin? The answer, if we're honest, gets to the root of our own pride. We all want the glory. Sin has hardwired us to be glory hogs. We all want to be the one who made the difference. We all want to be the one who made the contribution. But when we come to Jesus, we come not offering what we can do, not boasting in what we have done, but we come to Jesus as our only hope. Our only hope is that Jesus took our place. And look at verse 12. After Jesus took our place, look at what happened. He did not keep standing as though we needed to add something more to His sacrifice. Jesus sat down. 
all the priests of the Old Covenant, they just keep standing and moving to the next sacrifice, the, the next bowl of incense, the next offering, the next garment, the next washing. But Jesus came and offered His blood, and then He sat down. After a long day of yard work or washing cars, I enjoy that feeling of going to my living room and sitting down with an ice cold Coke in my hand and no plans to get back up for the rest of the day. That's the picture here. When Jesus returned to heaven, He sat down because the work of sacrifice was done. On the work of the, on the cross, Jesus accomplished what none of our sacrifices ever could. When He went to heaven, we saw two weeks ago in Psalm 24 that He was welcomed as the victorious warrior and king and priest. And as Psalm 110.1 said would happen, He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down in the place of power and of majesty and of glory. And he's sitting down because as F.F. Bruce says, a seated priest is the guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. If you belong to Jesus, you've been accepted in the presence of God. Jesus sat down. The work that Jesus left heaven to do has been done. And now look at verse 13. What then does Jesus do? It's not as though Jesus doesn't work anymore. We know that Jesus, Colossians 1 tells us, He holds the whole universe together. If Jesus stops working, then we're in trouble. But the work of sacrifice is done. And as He is seated in the place of power, ruling and reigning in righteousness, what does Jesus do? He waits. He waits. He waits for His enemies to be made a footstool for His feet. How is this happening? Church, it's happening through the progress of the Gospel to the ends of the earth. As the, as the people of God bow and submit themselves to their King and they humbly take the Gospel into their workplaces and their communities and around the world as we give of ourselves in response to what our King has given to us, the Gospel is going forward and people are either receiving or rejecting Christ. Those who are receiving Christ are recognizing that they were enemies of God and the Gospel changes them and praise God, they're no longer enemies of God. But those who reject the Gospel, those who refuse the Gospel, those who hear the Gospel and do not believe, they remain enemies and one day, all the people and all the forces of darkness that are opposed to Christ will be conquered at His return. It will be proven that they are mere footstools for the feet of Jesus. You see, both of these realities, the perfection of God's people that we'll read about in verse 14, through the, the perfection that comes through the blood of Christ, and Christ's total victory over anyone and everything that does not lovingly and joyfully surrender to the authority of Christ. Both of these truths we will see plainly with our eyes when He returns. But right now we see it through the eyes of faith. The options are clear. You can either be vanquished by the victory of Christ, or you can be rescued by the victory of Christ. Your eternity rises or falls on whether you will receive or reject the victory of Christ over sin. Verse 14 could not be clearer. No more 
physical sacrifices are required. Jesus sat down because He's the final and forever sacrifice through which forgiveness comes. There are no more altars to build. This is why Protestant churches reject putting altars in the church building. We don't need an altar. We don't have any lambs to bring, goats to bring, bulls to bring. The only thing we bring is our hearts broken by God. The altar is now on the inside, not in the building. The cross is the final physical altar. To be accepted in the favorable presence of God, we must come through the once and for all and final offering of Christ. To be righteous in God's eyes, we must be washed in the bloody sacrifice of Jesus. And when we are, the promise of God is that Christ has perfected those who are being sanctified. Two realities captured by these words, has perfected and are being sanctified. First, Jesus has accomplished everything, everything, everything necessary for us to be made perfect in the sight of God. We're declared perfect on the basis of Christ's sacrifice now, and when He comes and raises us up and gives us glorified bodies, our perfection will be plain for all to see, even for Pastor Hope. All sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood of Jesus. To stand before God and live, we must be made perfect through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And the text of Hebrews is saying, is, is while we are still in the flesh and while we are still battling sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, the completed work of Christ, is good enough to bring us as those who have been made perfect into the presence of God. But there's a second reality that is captured in verse 14. And it is this. If you really belong to Jesus, you're not just going to check a box, sign a card, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, and then walk out of the church and ignore Jesus the rest of your life. If you really belong to God, if you've really been set apart for God, then God will keep on setting you apart until the day He calls you home or until the day that Christ returns. You see, the Bible speaks of sanctification in two different ways. One is, is this completed act of setting you apart for God, but then this other is this ongoing act of conforming your life, shaping your life, making your life look more and more and more like Jesus. So those who have the guarantee of perfection through Jesus when He returns will have the evidence of ongoing sanctification in their lives in the here and now. Church, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about those who believe they're saved because they said a prayer, they walked an aisle, they did something when they were a child, and then they have neglected or abandoned the things of Christ for months or years or decades with almost no conviction, with complete justification of why they are not a part of a church family. Why they don't long for the things of God. Why they don't spend time in God's Word. Why they're not broken for other people who are far from God. Church, the, the text of Scripture is clear. If you belong to God, God's going to be at work in your life and you're going to be aware of it. It's going to make a difference in how you think and how you respond. 
Those who are sanctified by God are becoming in their thoughts, in their speech, in their actions, in their affections, in their desires, in their motivations. They are becoming more and more and more what God has already declared in truth that they are through the sacrifice of Christ. You see, if you've trusted Christ, God is at work in the here and now setting you apart for God. And this is possible, not because of how great you are. It is possible because of the greatness of Christ who established the new covenant through His once for all sacrifice. Those who have been saved by Christ in the past are now being sanctified by God in the present. And sanctification is expressed in an ever-growing awareness of our sinfulness and an ever-growing appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus. The evidence of salvation is not busyness trying to justify ourselves. The evidence of salvation is confidence and gratefulness for the once for all finished work of Christ, our high priest, who came according to the will of God, went to the cross to save sinners, and went to heaven and sat down. It is finished. It is done. And this work that God does, applying the life of Christ to the life of the believer, results in our final point in verses 15 through 18. It results in the inward transformation and forgiveness that was promised way back in the Old Testament and which is fulfilled in the New Covenant and comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. The inward transformation and forgiveness promised in the New Covenant, comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. As the author of Hebrews did back in chapter 8, he again quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. You see, church, the gospel's so simple, but it keeps on being repeated because it takes time for these hard-headed sinners, these hard-hearted sinners to accept it. We want to do something to change ourselves. We want to do something to save ourselves. But the good things to come of verse 1 come through the undeserved gift of God in Christ. It's not a payback gift. It's not like a, you were pretty good, so I'm going to give you a gift. We were stumbling around in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. We had no hope. And God sent His Son as an undeserved gift to rescue us. And to get that truth... Deep down into our hearts, Hebrews reminds us once again that the new covenant was prophesied way back in the Old Testament and now it has come by way of the sacrifice of Jesus and His sacrifice alone. Church, there's no other place and no other offering that brings the forgiveness of sin. And when we are united with Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit applies that work of Christ to our inward lives. This is called the miracle of new birth or regeneration. God, through His Holy Spirit, writes His laws on our hearts and on our minds, which means what God desires for us becomes what we desire to do. The commands of God are no longer burdensome. They become a source of delight. A person transformed by Christ will no longer delight in appearances, He will delight, rather, in the blood of Christ shed for his soul. He will no longer serve to be seen. He will serve because his life was purchased by Christ who came and served him first. 
If he delights in the laws of the Lord, he will surely and supremely take great delight in the Son of God. He will give himself to read and study and serve and meditate on Christ. Not to earn God's blessing or favor, but because he already found it through Christ. And he longs to know this Christ more and more. The favor and blessing of God comes through the full and forever pardon of sin available in Jesus who gave His life, was raised, was ascended, and has sat down because His work of sacrifice is done. Which leads us to one remaining question. Is your soul settled in the finished work of Christ? This morning, if you're still trying to earn it, or deserve it, or create it, in your own power, in your own strength. Let, be, let today be the day that you stop just knowing things about Jesus and you turn from your sin and you trust in Him and you actually know Jesus. Today, through the once for all finished work of Christ on your behalf, find the joy of knowing God. If that's your desire, if that's your need this morning, if you need to find life in Christ, now, I want to encourage you to pray with me something just like this. Would you bow with me? God in heaven, I'm a sinner. There's nothing I could do to forgive my sin or take away my sin or remove my sin. And I'm tired of trying to fake it till I make it. Because I'll never make it without you. I'm tired of pretending to know you when the reality is, is I just know some things about you. I'm tired of hanging on to a, a prayer that I prayed as a child that never bore any fruit. God, today I want to know for sure that I actually know you, that my sins have been forgiven through what Christ has done on the cross. And so, God, today, I lay my life down before you as an offering. God, today, I, I turn from my sin and I trust in you completely, wholly, totally. And God, I ask by your Holy Spirit that, that you would do that sanctifying work in my life, that every day you would make me more and more aware of my sinfulness and more and more grateful for the sacrifice of Christ and that, God, you would give me an opportunity to tell others of the, the victory that they can have over sin through the blood of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I, I believe you came and you died and you've been raised from the dead. I believe you now live and, and plead for those who belong to you and I, and I thank you for saving me today. And now I pray you'd help me to worship you well. In spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.